Well, some people call her the small woman. She stood at four feet, ten inches, and her name was Gladys Aylward. Gladys applied to be a missionary to China with the China Inland Mission, and she was turned down because she was considered too old, and she struggled to learn the language. So she went to China anyway. Gladys saved up her money. She bought a one-way ticket, and after a long journey, made it to China in the 1930s. And once there, she partnered with another missionary to open what came to be called the Inn of the Eight Happinesses. The aim of the inn was to provide an overnight stop for travelers and traders in the area. So the goal was to offer them clean lodging, good food, and as they stayed overnight, every night to preach the gospel and to teach these travelers in China and strangers staying at the inn Bible stories. Aylward had an incredible ministry. Uh, throughout her time in China, we, we know that she stopped a prison riot she went home to home sharing the gospel. She continued to run her inn and reach out to strangers. She helped rescue multiple girls from suffering and poverty. And during a conflict between China and Japan, she cared for around 100 adopted children. As bombs began to drop and the Japanese killed women and children, th this little missionary started helping these children hide in the terrain of the land and in caves. And because she helped to protect the children and because she spoke out against the Japanese atrocities, Japan eventually issued a warrant for her arrest and called for her to be killed. Well, in an attempt to reach safety, Gladys, along with these hundred children she was caring for, began this brutal journey through the mountains to escape, and eventually they reached the Yellow River. Gladys expected to find boats that would take them to safety, and as they came to the river with this large group of children behind her, there were no boats to be found. So Gladys wept. And her children pleaded with her to pray that the Lord would deliver them just like he delivered his people from Egypt by parting the waters. And so in the midst of this trial, Gladys gathers the children together and she just begins to pray and rejoice and lead these kids to sing hymns. And an article I read this week reported what happened next. Quote, a Chinese officer heard the music and came to investigate. Hearing their story, the officer signaled for the boats to return, and Gladys and the children were taken to the other side. Due to her character and her love for others, she wasn't only known as a small woman, she was known as the virtuous woman. Her life was driven by faith, by a longing to preach the gospel, and by welcoming strangers and having hope in the midst of immense trials and suffering. In other words, she was a living example of Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. So as we come to Romans 12, we have the joy to dive one more time into the rich application of verses 9 through 13. And as we've seen, Paul is providing believers with 13 marks of genuinely spiritual living. He moves from one to another in rapid-fire succession. And, and even though they seem to just be random commands, in verses 9 through 13, what he stitches together is not random. 
Paul takes a needle and thread, and he stitches together these various virtues, these commands, and they all relate to one another. We could summarize what Paul is saying in one single word, and that word is love. So look with me in your Bible at Romans 12, and I want to read our text beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at how love impacts seven areas of our lives. And the beginning of, the ver- of verse 9 really sets the tone for the entire list. Let love be genuine. If our love is not genuine, everything else in this passage frays and falls apart. You could think of everything from verse 9 through verse 13 as an expression of genuine, uh, non-hypocritical, brotherly Love. So the first week we considered love and your salvation, love and your sincerity, and love and your sin. And then last week from verses 10 and 11, we looked at love and your siblings, how the church should be marked by this family-like love, and love and your spirit, meaning our love for God and others involves working, feeling, and serving to the glory of God. And this week from Romans 12, verses 12 and 13, we will see two final areas of life that love impacts so that you will love others to the glory of God. So continuing from the last two weeks, six, love and your suffering, and seven, love and your stuff. Let's begin with love and your suffering. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 gives us three commands. So if you're just reading this in your Bible and just trying to take quick note, the application is very simple. Christian, do these things in your life. Rejoice, be patient, be constant in prayer. At face value, it's very simple to understand. It's the application where things get difficult. But here's the question as we come to verse 12. How are those three related? What connects them? And what do they have to do with love for one another and for others? So to see how they're related, think of it this way. When in your life do you struggle the most to rejoice? During what seasons of life do you most need to wait, to endure, to patiently trust the Lord and his goodness to you? What kinds of circumstances cause you to realize your weakness and in that weakness to see you desperately need to go to God in prayer for help? What connects them is found in the middle of verse 12, in tribulation. This is the normal setting the normal experience of the Christian life in a fallen world. Life ebbs and flows, and sometimes you experience more trials, sometimes you experience less trials, but trials are part and parcel of the Christian life. So in what kind of circumstances are we to live out these commands to love, to rejoice, to be patient, and to pray? The tribulations and trials of day-to-day life. 
That is the setting in which love is expressed. So verse 12 gives us three ways to demonstrate love for God and others in the midst of suffering. Here's the first one. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice refers to the hope that comes from in you when you recognize what God has done for you. It's what arises in you when we see what God has done for you. Rejoice, Paul says specifically, in hope. So here is the grounds, the basis, the reason that we rejoice. Hope. And to see what he means by that, turn with me back to Romans 5. And I want to look at verse 2, which we read earlier in our scripture reading. Romans 5, we'll look just at verse 2. Through him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And he then goes on to describe how this hope leads us through suffering. But notice, just for now, at the end of verse 2, there's an, al- there's an identical phrase, almost, it's very close in language, to Romans 12.12. 12. He says in verse 2, rejoice in hope. And earlier in verse 2, what has to come before the rejoicing? Faith. Faith that we have peace with God through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Faith that though we were once alienated from God and dead in our sin, we have obtained access to God because of Christ. Hope because he was beaten and mocked and spat upon. Hope because he dies in your place and he bears the wrath you deserve and he cries out with all the sin of his people, including yours and mine, it is finished. And he cries out and tells us through the words, it is finished, that he intercedes for you, that your sin is taken upon him, that he empowers you with his spirit, that he forgives you when you sin, and that in his love he promises to never leave you or forsake you in the midst of trials. So hope in Romans 5.2 and in Romans 12.12 is a uniquely Christian hope. This is not just wishful thinking. We say things like, I hope my sports team wins the game. I hope there's good weather for my vacation. Right? It's this... The kind of, we can't control that. We can't do anything about if that will happen or not. It's just a way of saying, this is what I hope unfolds. This is what I hope occurs. That's not the kind of hope we have here. The hope in Romans 12, verse 12, is assurance and promise of salvation in the present and future. To rejoice, our minds must go to a specific hope, a specific reality that we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of suffering, believers always have reason to have a hopeful expectation of the future. I can't say it better than Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. In Christ, we have hope. In Christ. Hope is the wood that keeps the fires of rejoicing burning. Hopelessness is the blistering sun that beats down on and evaporates every drop of joy in our lives. Rejoice and hope. Paul gives a second command in Romans 12, verse 12. Be patient in tribulation. Now, we naturally think of patience as something we need when somebody or something annoys us or bugs us. So if somebody cuts you off, instead of getting upset, be patient. 
if, if your spouse or your kids does something that gets on your nerves, be patient instead of snapping at them. And that's good. Do that. That's right. But the, the word for patient goes deeper than just don't get annoyed. That's not what it's communicating. Patient means steadfast. Patient means to bear up under. The, the same word is used in James 5, verse 11. And listen to how it's translated here. James 5, 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. That's the same word, patient. You have heard of the steadfastness, the patience of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate in merciful. To be patient is to have a weight on you and you hold firm. You stand your ground in hope, in the midst of tribulation. So what is the connection between rejoicing in hope and being patient in tribulation? Both are necessary for us to glorify God in our trials and tribulations. We need both sides. So God does not show us how to love and God does not show us his love by keeping us from trials. He shows his love by being with you in the midst of your trials. So what does it mean to be patient in tribulation? To be patient is to stubbornly refuse to give up hope in God and the promises that he's given you in the midst of your trials. To be patient is to refuse to give up hope found in Christ. This is probably the only time you will hear this application in a sermon. Be stubborn in your life. Hold your ground. Hold fast to the hope that is secured for you in Christ. The whispers of trials whisper, you have every reason to not rejoice. God's not good to you. He won't get you through this. This is too hard of a road. It's too long. And the word of God through the Spirit declares, be stubborn. Be patient. Hold fast Christian, do not give up. Our trials are taking us somewhere. In Acts 14, verses 21 and 22, we see a scene in the early church where Paul and other believers are encouraging one another. And listen to what it says. This is Acts 14, beginning in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, they encourage one another, stubbornly hold fast to the hope of the gospel. Continue in faith. Be patient. So here's the question. How is rejoicing in hope and remaining steadfast and patient in the midst of trials an expression of love? Not just love for God. How is that an expression of love to others? I mean, I see why I need to do these things personally for my own sanctification. But what does this have to do with loving other believers? And I struggled as I studied this with how to answer that question until a Sunday morning a few weeks ago. So I left church. It was a normal Sunday morning, and I went to a grocery store. And while I'm in the grocery store, I check my phone, and I have a text from Pastor Clint. And he texted the elders, and he said, Are any of you still at the church? Um, Kay Allen just had a stroke. So... I wasn't there. I texted him, I'll go back now. So I immediately come back to the church, and I get to the parking lot right as she is being put into an ambulance and being taken to a hospital. 
So when we head to the hospital, we're going to just sit and wait for an update. And my goal, my desire is to pray for Kay and to support and encourage Rusty as he now begins to walk through this uncertainty and this trial. And so once we get there, we get settled and we pray together for Kay and then we start talking. And you know what Rusty starts talking about? How good God is. And he tells story after story about how faithful the Lord has been and how God has seen them through trials and how regardless of the outcome, God knows and he controls all things and he trusts the Lord and he loves his wife and he hopes she's okay physically, but he knows she's in God's hands. He he talks about how the Lord will use this to give him opportunities to show Christ and to share Christ with others. And so I eventually leave the hospital a few hours later, or however long it was, to go home. And and later in the day, I'm I'm reflecting on that afternoon. And I'm meditating on Romans 12, 12. And it just clicks. What is the connection between suffering well and loving others? My goal was to love and encourage Rusty as he walks through a trial. And you know what actually happened? He loved and encouraged me. I left seeing him rejoice and hope in the Lord. Seeing a believer patient and steadfast in the midst of uncertainty. He showed genuine love as he pointed those around him to how good God is. We talk a lot about how God uses trials to sanctify us personally. And that is true, and that is good, and he uses trials just in terms of our walk with Christ, and we hold fast to those precious truths. In addition to that, have you ever thought about trials from this angle? How you endure trials can be an act of love to other believers around you. Walking by faith through through trials can be an expression of love. If we rejoice in hope and are steadfast in tribulation, We tell those around us something about our God, about his goodness, about his love and his faithfulness. And that doesn't mean that when we endure a trial, we don't weep or lament. I mean, just look at Romans 12, verse 15. Paul is about to say, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I mean, have you ever wept with a believer who, even as they weep, they trust the Lord Jesus Christ? It hurts with every fiber of their being, but they know he is good. Have you ever sought to encourage a believer through a trial? And somehow you just find yourself encouraged by their godliness and how they point you to how good God is, even as they experience incredible pain. That's just one way that verse 12 is an expression of genuine love, both for God as we trust him and for others as we show God is good. He is faithful. There's a third command at the end of Romans 12, verse 12. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Few things drive us to pray like trials. I had a former pastor and mentor who said, prayer is the wartime radio that lets us speak to the general in the midst of our trials. It's how we go to our king and our savior. So as you seek to glorify God and love others in the midst of suffering, how should you approach prayer in your life? Be constant be devoted to. Prayer requires effort. Persistence 
Colossians 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer is a conscious, deliberate decision. Pray for one another. Pray for the church. Pray for faithfulness. Pray for other believers. Loving churches are full of people who pray. And here's just one practical way that you can try to apply this text to your prayers. Do you ever struggle with how to pray? Maybe you feel like your prayers get repetitive sometimes as you pray for others and you're praying the same thing over and over again and then your mind kind of drifts off from thing to thing to thing and then it's like, I, I was praying. Like, this is come back to where I was. Here's a very simple, pra- hopefully practical way to help you in your prayer life as you pray for others. Pray scripture. For example, try using this passage in Romans 12 as a prayer list. Let's say that you take the church directory and you open it up and you're flipping through faces and names of people in the church and you come to a name or a face. Maybe you don't know them that well. You recognize the face, but you don't know much about them and your circumstance. And you think, you know, I, you know, I don't know what's going on in their life. How should I pray for them? What, what should I pray? Here's one way. Here's something you can try. Try using Romans 12, 9 through 13, or other passages as a template to pray for the church. In my office, I have these flashcards that help guide me through my prayer time. And at the top of the flashcards are categories. And one of the categories is suffering and trials. And it's just people I know personally or in the church that are experiencing various trials. And sometimes I get to that card and I think I've been praying for healing. I've been praying for relief. But Lord, how, how else do I pray for this person? How do I come before you again? What, what do they need me to pray for? Pray that their love would be genuine. Pray that they would resist temptation and hold fast to what God says is good in his word. Pray that they would be zealous for Christ and faithful to serve the Lord in whatever situation they may be in. Pray if they're facing a trial that they would rejoice and be patient and have hope. More broadly, pray that the church would be marked by brotherly love, that we would honor one another. Pray this for your family for your kids, for yourself. If you pepper your prayers with scripture, you're going to notice your prayers become less repetitive, more God-centered, more eternally minded. So to show love for God and others in the midst of trials, rejoice, be patient, and pray. And that brings us to verse 13, the final area of life that love impacts. Love and your stuff. Love and your stuff. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Here are two final commands, two final expressions of love that involve practical care and support for God's people. So the first command at the beginning of verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, contribute means more than just to give. This is much more than just write a check. The word contribute, it really it means to share, to come alongside, to, to partner with. So it's not so much about the money given, though that's part of contributing. It's about sharing together as a family. That's why it's an expression of family-like, brotherly-like love. Now, the needs are very clearly physical needs. This is food, clothing, shelter. And notice specifically, contribute to whose physical needs? 
to the needs of the saints. Now, that's not to say that we never contribute to the needs of others, but again, his focus here is on the church. It's about the love that other believers share for one another. And Galatians 6 verse 10 tells us, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Genuine Christian love expresses itself in supporting one another physically when necessary. And we see this from the earliest days of the church. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, just to be clear, that is not forced welfare. That's not about the government. This is about the church. This is where believers are giving out money and resources to one another, supporting one another willingly, faithfully. This is not believers just giving things away without any discernment to anyone who comes along. This is a picture of believers out of love for Christ and out of love for one another, wisely and willingly caring for one another's legitimate physical needs. Now, Pastor Clint is about to preach on supporting other believers and partnering in ministry as he goes verse by verse through Philippians, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. I got his permission to say that from the pulpit, so we're going to move fairly quickly. But for our purposes this morning, just consider with me briefly what principles should guide us as we seek to apply this command to our lives. Well, to help answer that question, turn with me briefly to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians 8, I want to read verses 1 through 3. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. That is a first century snapshot of Romans 12, 9 through 13 in action. These believers have an abundance of joy, or to use the language of Romans 12, they rejoice in hope. They're in a severe test of affliction. In other words, they're being patient in tribulation. And as an act of love, in the midst of their trials, what motivates their support for one another in verse 1? The grace of God. The grace of God. Because that has taken root in their lives, that grace expresses itself in an abundance of generosity. Their, their contributions flow out of hearts changed by the gospel and their love for one another. And because of that, they give generously of their own accord. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So just in brief, how do you do this? How do you contribute to the needs of the saints? Generously? without someone forcing you to the glory of God. Generously, of your own accord, without someone forcing you to the glory of God. And what might that look like in more detail? Pastor Clint will tell you that next week, so ask him. Okay, turn with me back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, there's one final way to show love and support to the saints with your stuff. Look at the end of verse 13. Seek to show 
hospitality. Here is a practical, tangible way to love others. Be hospitable. And before we get into what that means, let me first draw your attention to who that command is given to. Hospitality is a requirement of elders in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. But is Paul primarily talking to pastors here in Romans 12? No, who's he speaking to? Just believers. He's speaking to those who follow Christ. So like the other 12 commands in this passage, this is part of the blueprint of love for every believer. The the flavor of our lives. Whatever the end of verse 13 is talking about, if you never do it, If it has no part to play in your life, you're disobeying God. This is what God says is an expression of biblical love. So, what is God commanding you and I to do in verse 13? Well, the word hospitality means love of strangers. Hospitality refers primarily to welcoming guests or strangers, especially welcoming others into the home. So the focus isn't so much on getting together with your closest friends. So that's good do that. Praise God for that. That, That's just not the full expression of what he's saying here. Biblical hospitality focuses on doing ministry and caring for others, even those you maybe don't know that well. And this command is given to believers repeatedly. Hebrews 13 verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, just to avoid misunderstanding, Biblical hospitality is not you should be willing to let any random person in your home regardless of how they are or what they're doing or how they act. That's not the point of biblical hospitality. But there is a point to it. And what is it? Well, in the first century, think about it. They didn't have Holiday Inn. Inns existed, but they were rare. They cost a bunch of money. And they were dangerous. So as guys like Paul travel around the ancient world preaching the gospel, what are they dependent on to live? Hospitality. They're dependent on other believers opening their homes, even as strangers, to support gospel ministry. Think of it this way. Without hospitality, most gospel ministry in the early church never would have been possible. This is how the gospel goes forth. And we see a picture of it in the letter 3 John. 3 John is written to a believer named Gaius, and he practiced hospitality. 3 John, verses 5 through 8, says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing, and pause, the beloved is this specific believer, Gaius. So Gaius, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So apparently, this beloved believer, Gaius, is welcoming traveling preachers and ministers to stay in his home. And as they ministered, he ministers to them by giving them a place to stay. He cares for them, and then he sends them on their journey. And in doing so, he becomes a fellow worker in the spread of the gospel. So what does that look like today? How does this express itself in your life? Well, just one example— As part of my studies at Masters in California, I had to go to the seminary multiple times. And one of the times I was out there, I had to stay for two weeks during the summer. So I was going with another student, 
and we're trying to figure out where to stay. You know, we don't know people in California. We're looking at hotels. We're looking at Airbnbs. And I don't know if you've heard or not, but California is really expensive. Like, everything costs a lot of money. So paying to stay in a hotel in California for two weeks on top of flights, on top of food, on top of tuition, it's a lot. It's a big financial commitment. So we're trying to figure it out, you know, what are we going to do? And we get this email. We, we get an email. Now, now, to understand this, you need to know the seminary is connected to a church, and the church is called Grace. So we get an email from somebody in the seminary that says, hey, there's a family at Grace that just wants to use their home to bless preachers. So they wanted to offer for somebody to stay in their home for two weeks with them for free. Are you interested? Do you realize what a blessing that was? That, that this family, out of love for Christ and a desire to serve, says to pastors they've never met, stay in our home. Use our resources. That's an expression of hospitality. And just take careful note of the command in Romans 12, 13. It's not just be hospitable. It's seek to show hospitality. The command is pursue be intentional, initiate, and look for ways to show hospitality for others. And this can be difficult and intimidating to do. Because when you practice hospitality, you're not just giving your money so much as you're giving yourself. You're giving your time. You're giving up your personal space, your home. It pushes us to step into the unknown, to reach out to somebody we don't know that well, so how can you grow in this? How can we apply this? Well, here's two practical questions to help you apply this in your life. Here's the first one. How can you welcome strangers or those you don't know that well in the church? How can you welcome strangers or those that you don't know that well in the church? That is the heartbeat of hospitality. Loving strangers. That's where it begins. Seek to show hospitality, for example, to strangers that you see in the church, those that you don't recognize or know as well, visitors who are coming in. A hospitable church is a welcoming church, a loving church. So be on the lookout for faces you don't recognize, for people that you maybe have seen before but you don't know that well. Reach out to them. Welcome them. And kids and students, listen to me just for a moment. I know it's easy to zone out on the sermon. Just listen to me for a second. Think about how you can obey God and apply this in your life. No matter how young or where you are in high school or middle school, whatever it might be. Think about you're at a class, maybe a class at school or a class here at the church, and you see somebody who's kind of on the outside. They're new. They don't know anybody that well. How can you be hospitable to them? Welcome them. Tell them your name. Ask what their name is. Invite them to come play with you, to be part of whatever you're doing. And if, and if they're new, maybe they won't want to. Maybe they're kind of reserved or they say no. That's okay. That's okay. You know why? Because you still showed love. And you welcome them in, just like God says. You obeyed God. So here's a second question. That, to apply this to our lives. Second, is there a way you can start small? Is there a way you can start small? Some have more experience practicing hospitality than others, and it comes more naturally to them. 
Some believers can have an entire house full of guests, and there's people running all over the place, and there's noise, and they love it. And to other believers, the thought of having a group of people over causes like a low-key panic attack. It's like, I don't want anything to do with that. And if you're in the first group, praise God for you. We give God glory for your generosity and your love. And if you're in the latter group, you don't see how you could have over, for example, 15 people. Okay, can you have over one? Is there one person or couple or family you can minister to that you can encourage? Hospitality is often geared towards strangers, but not always. 1 Peter 4 verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. To one another. Start small. Like everything in the Christian life, this is an area we as believers grow in. So think about ways that you can use the resource of your home to do ministry and care for others. And maybe that means having a family over so you can get to know them better. Maybe it's having someone over so you can disciple them or encourage them. Or maybe it's just folding them into your day, just welcoming them into whatever you might be doing that day. Can you have someone over for a meal? And if a meal feels like too much, can you have someone over for coffee or tea? And if that's still too much, can you invite someone out to eat? Wherever you start, you're commanded by the Lord to seek to show hospitality as an act of love. And just one final encouragement to you, to practice hospitality, please don't compare yourself to others and then convince yourself, I could never do this. Maybe you've been welcomed into somebody's home and everything is immaculate. The food is perfect. Every surface is dusted. Every decoration is in its place. And you think, I can't cook like this. My house doesn't look like this. There's toys everywhere. There's stuff going on. It's chaos. I can't measure up to this standard. Your hospitality doesn't have to look exactly like anybody else's. Hospitality can involve paper plates and a pizza. Everyone loves pizza. The purpose of hospitality isn't to look a certain way. It's to show love and care for others. So don't allow fear of man to rob you of the joy of obeying God. And where he says love is expressed and blessing is found. So, Romans 12, 9 through 13 is a picture of genuine spiritual living. More specifically, it is a practical blueprint of biblical love. But even more than that, it's a picture of God's saving grace. Our God is a loving God. He is a giving God. And he, gives, he gifts us not merely our lives or our resources, but more than that, he gives us the gift of his son. As an expression of his love, he saves us and he adopts us into his family. He makes us his children. He serves us and he brings us together and is shaping us according to his blueprint, conforming us to the image of Christ. And think about it. He takes those who are heartless and he gives them hearts full of genuine love. He takes those who approved of evil and now calls them by his spirit to abhor evil. He takes those who hated him, and he now calls them to serve him. He takes those who were estranged from him and alienated, and he welcomes them in. And he brings them close. And he calls us friends. And he saves, and he creates a people for himself that reflect him. 
and the riches of his grace as they live and love one another. Pray with me. Lord, every drop of Romans 12, 9 through 13 comes out of your grace. We, I pray, I hope, are astounded by the work of Jesus Christ that we think about that we were once alienated from you, that we were dead in our sin, that we were by nature children of wrath, that we were strangers to your grace and your love, and that not when we were good, but when we would never run to you, you came to us. And you showed us love, and you welcomed us into your family, the people of God. And so we rejoice in the salvation that you have given. And Lord, we, we know we don't love perfectly, We know that this is a process as your spirit works in us. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work. And and you, you already put the love in our hearts. But, Lord, help us to express that more and more, to show love. If we're we're not as welcoming or hospitable, help us to do that more by your grace and by your spirit. If um, If we struggle with any one of these, help us to grow to the glory of your name as we seek to show love to you and to one another. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.